I see you shiver with anticipation. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. Make it three yards, motherfucker, and we'll have an automobile race. I'll leave you. I'll leave you, baby. I'll leave you. Now leave me alone. Private Charles Pontagon, a telegraphy specialist, communications platoon, headquarters, company reporting, sir. Splendid. Pumper Nicole. A plum picture. Nicole, splendid. Episode 42 of the Cult Movies Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony King. We love author, critic, and historian Danny Perry and his cult movies books around these parts. So we're going to discuss a movie from the first book and then offer up some pairing recommendations. And back for number three, my dear friend and regular guest, Rosalie Lewis. How are you, Rosalie? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on again, Anthony. Glad you're not tired of me yet. Oh, my gosh. I have been looking forward to this. There are, I mean, everybody that's on the show, but... After having taken, uh, you know, such a long break and then went through some like some pretty heavy personal stuff, I was like, man, I'm so excited to be able to talk to all these people again, because uh, I always find great solace in speaking with with people like you. So uh, thank you for being here. And we're not talking about a noir this time. I know. Uh, Shocker. This will be fun. I think. Is this, I don't think I've done a silent movie yet on the show, because uh, we got Caligari and I think Caligari, Dr. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the only other silent film in the books. But why don't you go ahead and introduce what we're going to talk about this week? Absolutely. So we are going to be talking about the great silent film directed by G.W. Pabst. And starring the one and only Louise Brooks, we're talking about Pandora's Box. Uh, how familiar with this film were you before doing this? Well, let's put it this way. I'm currently staring at a canvas portrait of Louise Brooks on my wall <laughs> right now. So I'm a really big fan of hers. And I had seen the film a few times, but I wouldn't say I'm at the same level of expertise is my beloved noirs but this is just one of those films that has always mystified intrigued and enraptured me and i was excited to dive back into it especially because silent films i think are often one of those things where you feel intimidated if you haven't watched a lot of them or maybe you've seen like a charlie chaplin film or a buster keaton film but then you're like Ooh, German expressionism. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get into that, right? So I think this movie is a great entry point for people who aren't big silent movie fans yet. Totally. And the funny thing is, uh, so I, I this was one in the first book that I hadn't seen until, you know, maybe two weeks ago. And then I rewatched it again uh, last night. And really loved it the second time. I liked it the first time, but really loved it last night. Uh, but I agree with you. This is a great po- uh, like uh, po- 
point of entrance into silent film and even German film. It, it's not, you know, it's definitely not as out there as Caligari, for instance, right? Right. Um, but it's such a great story. What I find interesting about this is how long it is. It's two hours and 12 mm -hmm. minutes, which is, is pretty long for a silent movie, right? Yeah, that's a lot of reels. Yeah, that's right. And they like to keep it real. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was long. Uh, yeah, I was I was shocked. And maybe that was, I don't want to say that that was what kept me from watching it um, in the first place. But I was just, you know, because a lot of times these silent films, they're older and so they're going to be shorter. Um, you know, a lot of them less than 90 minutes. And so here we have one that's like 212. And uh, I will say the first time I watched it, I felt the time. But then last night, I didn't. I was so enraptured and enthralled. And it probably has to do the first time I watched it. Uh, it was on a it was on my laptop yeah, at, at work. And then I watched it on our big TV at home last night where I could fully appreciate the beauty of Louise Brooks, which uh, who, whom we will talk about here in a second. Before we get any further, let me read a little thing from Danny here. Now, like I told you before we started recording, Danny's essay on this is so great. And all of his essays are great, right? But uh, I I love it when I agree with him. It makes it, uh, it makes the essay, I don't know, more enjoyable to read or whatever. And he, he makes so many great points in this essay. Anyways, he, here's a little bit about uh, it, the Pandora's box, Pandora's box's cult status. He says, as uh, Vedican's Lulu, uh, Frank Vedican is the author of the play that this movie's based on, had been mistreated in the 1890s, Pap's film was condemned as being immoral and scandalous. Its unveiled sexual content caused such a stir that for foreign distribution, the picture was heavily censored. In America, the Paps films were known primarily by reputation. Although Brooks became more famous and a genuine sex symbol as a result of her appearance in what were re uh, reputed to be two notorious films, the other one being Diary of a Lost Girl, also directed by G.W. Paps, uh, few in America thought they were missing out in not seeing pictures that were generally lambasted in the European press. Soon the Paps films were stored away without ever having attained fair critical evaluation and, uh, and original uncut versions were lost forever. Fortunately, newly restored prints on the Paps films surfaced in the 50s at film festivals and Louise Brooks retrospectives throughout Europe and word spread to the United States that European critics had grossly underestimated Paps two films. Many more years passed before Uncut Prince of Pandora's Box got widespread distribution in America and it became the most prestigious film on rep theater schedules. Now, remember, this is written in 1980, 1981. Mm -hmm. Criterion, not a thing yet, right? Right. Uh, and then he concludes this part. He says, there is no doubt about it. Pandora's Box is a great, important film, a tremendous discovery. Like I said, the whole essay is so damn good. Uh, lots of historical stuff, lots of background on Louise Brooks, who, uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to jump in to talk about right now. This was my first experience with the woman. And uh, like I said, the the first time I watched it, smaller screen, she was beautiful, of course. Um, but I, I didn't get uh, 
how charismatic she was, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and then watched her on the bigger screen last night. And one, her beauty just, I mean, it floored me how absolutely stunningly beautiful this woman is. But she's funny. She's heartbreaking. She does so much acting, and Danny writes about this a lot, so much acting with her eyes, with her uh, twinges in her face, with her body movement, with the way she lays on the bed, with the way she like takes one step. She can do so much without saying a goddamn thing. Uh, it's absolutely hypnotic. Yeah, she really, I would say, is the reason I consider this a cult film, because she's almost a cult in herself. I was looking at Roger Ebert's review of this movie, and he called it one of the great movies. And I don't, I believe the review he wrote was in 1998. And he said that according to a Wired magazine that had just came out, um, that she was the most searched name of dead actresses on the internet at the time. And I'm sure that's not the case now. But it's interesting that, you know, in those early days of the internet, she was making headlines, you know, a hundred years after her birth and well after her death. And this is somebody who made, I think, 28 films total, most of them silent, some mm -hmm. of them lost, and really only maybe three or four that people still talk about. But really, it's this one in Diary of a Lost Girl that people are most focused on. And that was another, of course, Pabst film. Um but she just has that iconic flapper look. And I don't know if we can say she invented it, but she certainly popularized it. The bobbed hair, oh. the very severe bang, the, you know, really long drawn eyebrows and those eyes, those big eyes with the, you know, long lashes. And then that tiny little mouth and she's got the dark red lipstick on. It's just a completely iconic look. And I think many have probably tried to imitate it. You can see, you know, in burlesque shows and things like that, but there will never be another Lulu. She is just that iconic. It's yeah. It's uh, again, rewatching this on the bigger screen. You could see the influence of this film, you know, since, since 1929, mm -hmm. like it's ridiculous. And even uh, Vidkin's plays, his, his dialogue, his story, you could see have influenced so many stories, so many, uh, you know, stage plays, so many musicals, so many movies since, since the late 1800s. And uh, yeah, so Louise Brooks, uh, what I find interesting is that she's basically, the character of Lulu is basically Louise Brooks, right? This is yeah. kind of how she was. Now, what I loved is that, so, uh, you know, she kind of, uh, was, you know, maybe on the vaudeville circuit and, and, and doing her, you know, kind of background thing here in America, but then goes to Europe. She's discovered and like, she's in these, these movies, uh, only a few times getting like the, the main lead part. But so she, she kind of conquers Europe. Right. And then she comes back to America mm -hmm. and she's like shunned, essentially blacklisted mm -hmm. and forgotten about. And what I think is so interesting is that so she, you know, retires basically and disappears and years later turns up in Rochester, New York at the Eastman House where she had been studying classic film and and had since become a prestigious critic and a film historian. Yeah. And you read that about this this woman who is a tremendous actress 
absolutely hysterical. Doesn't even you don't even have to hear her voice. She's absolutely hysterical. Drop dead gorgeous. And she's a lover of film and a critic and a historian. I'm just like Wow. Yeah, this woman she's has amazing. it all. She does. She, you know, she started out in you know the Midwest, right, middle of nowhere. I think she started her first play when she was like four years old, right, a little church production. Um, and then I think when she was sixteen is when she went to New York and she joined a dancing company. And that dancing troupe went all over the U.S. They toured for like three years. But she got kicked out, and I there's different rumors of why she got kicked out of the dance troupe, but some of them are because she was too promiscuous, um, and others are, oh, she was, like, caught, you know, getting photographed in, like, semi-nude um, angles, or maybe she just clashed with, you know, the people that were running it. But, you know, she's one of these people that if the tabloids had really existed as much back then, <laughs> she would have been all over them, right? Um, she definitely, like, owned her sexuality, owned her, you know um self-image and she married young but she also divorced the guy when he refused to take her to europe and told her she could go somewhere else that was quote a little bit warmer <laughs> <laughs> meaning hell um and she also you know like her character we're jumping a little bit ahead but like her character in this movie um definitely seemed to be at least bisexual if not pansexual she was definitely had male and female lovers. And one of those uh, was, I believe, a niece of William Randolph Hearst um, or somebody in that group. And so those two had been together in her early 20s. And then when they were discovered or when the, that young lady was discovered, she was sent to a mental institution, um, presumably for substance abuse. But a couple days after being put there, she committed suicide. And that is when Louise Brooks was like, F Hollywood, I'm out of here and went to Europe. So don't know if that was the full reason, but it certainly was probably part of it that she just felt like there was too much hypocrisy and she went for a more open society that Germany was at the time. Well, and you can see in her eyes and her face, um, I don't want to say hardship because she's not, mm -hmm. she doesn't look weathered. She doesn't look worn. Right. Uh, but but in her eyes, you can just see this this young woman has experienced a lot in such a short amount of time. Right. Uh, let me read if you if you would indulge me, please. Uh, mm -hmm. One more thing from Danny here. He writes about uh, Louise Brooks. He says Brooks is stunning in Pandora's box. She lights up the screen just as Lulu is supposed to provide the brightest light in the dreary lives of the men she loves. She is not just going through the motions. In her eyes and her subtle expressions, we see that she understands the sexual drives and needs that Lulu feels and her desire to make her world a sexual playground. She betrays her sympathy for her character by playing her with aloofness and recklessness, but without a trace of meanness. Her Lulu doesn't try to control her sexual impulses, but she knows that others will try to condemn her for them. She protects herself from accusers through laughter, although sometimes Brooks lets the pain show through, and anger, but never self-pity. And that is so evident watching Louise Brooks. And sadly, uh, I'm ashamed to admit, this is my only Louise Brooks. I, I was going to try to watch, uh, what's the pity, uh, Diary of a Lost Girl. I was going to try to watch that mm -hmm. before this, but I just didn't get around to it. Uh, but you can see in Louise Brooks, this character of Lulu, which is 
it's heartbreaking, but she obviously uses it to her advantage in this part and, and just floors the viewer. Yeah, she's really stunning. And you see it right from the opening scenes where she has this amazing quality of being able to seem so childlike and yet also almost predatory, but like without realizing it. Right. And, um, you know, clearly like the men and at least one woman in her life are completely under her spell. Like there's, you know, nothing they can do. They can't help themselves. They're just falling all over themselves to be with her and they will do anything for her. Um, so, you know, you can see why from pretty much the opening scene. And I found it interesting. You mentioned that, you know, the first time you watched it, you did kind of feel the time ticking by. I feel like the same thing happened to me at the beginning of the movie, but then as it picked up, um, I remember being just kind of feeling like I was being drawn into her web too. I think the movie doesn't really explain much of what's going on right away. So it takes a minute to yeah. kind of get into his rhythm, but sort of sense that we're in the midst of a cycle that has been going on probably for a lot of Lulu's life. And that is, you know, she's with a man, she's, you know, potentially using them to kind of improve station in life, but she also seems to just be enjoying their company and they're certainly enjoying her company. And that's kind of where we find ourselves at the beginning of the film. Yeah. You right away from the top of the movie, you, you, you see that she knows she wants this kind of uh, free lifestyle. Right. Um, and, and like being sexually liberated, which 1929 seems like a huge deal, like as the viewer. Right. Um, but she also knows that this could lead to trouble because like you said, she, she's probably been living this sort of life for so many years and has gotten into trouble and knows, like Danny said, like there are people out there who are condemning this and like looking down on her, uh, but she just can't help herself. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a very uh, impactful moment seeing that play out. And then realizing this movie, like I said, is from 1929 and like years. Uh, well, actually, I don't know if it's years, but like, I mean, this is like a women's liberal, uh, you know, women's lib moment. This is like she mm -hmm. she becomes like in, in the movie she does, too. She becomes a sort of like folk hero. Right. Yeah. And but yeah. So like there's so many moments. One, like how low her dresses are cut. Um Mm -hmm. uh, it seems so risque for this time. Uh, and, and then you have, you know, uh, which you, you've talked about already, the two women dancing together. Uh, and so this is, this might be the first cinematic lesbian. I, you know, that's, I think that's, uh, is that right? Uh, that's what Danny said. It's definitely one of the first, and I would say probably the most prominent for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, this uh, speaking of influence, uh, Holly go lightly, right? I think, totally. I mean, uh, 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 what the hell's who's the author? What the hell's his name? Who wrote that? Capote, yeah, Capote. Uh, obviously, I mean, it's so apparent and it, it's probably sure. it's probably written about a lot, but based Holly go lightly, uh, in Breakfast at Tiffany's on Lulu, like they're the same character for God's sakes. Uh, but I, I just love that everybody in the movie, not everybody, but most people in the movie uh, are looking at Lulu as this amoral or immoral um, 
<laughs> like slut, right? Um, yeah. And then many audience members, I would assume, would be thinking the same thing. But what I find interesting is how careful Pabst uh, portrays Lulu. He doesn't judge her with the camera. He, I feel like he gives her even more power. He empowers her with the way he's showing her. And you could tell that this filmmaker cares so much about this young woman um, that he's not on the side of the judgy pricks. He cares mm -hmm. about this woman, N not even in love with her. He, he, he's on her side. He wants to lift her up and, and show the world that this woman is doing nothing wrong. And I think that is so cool to think about again such an old movie, a silent film, 1929. Here we have this male filmmaker who is on the side of empowering women. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible thing. And, you know, we're seeing it obviously through 2021 eyes. I'm sure it was seen a lot differently when it came out, but it certainly is. Uh, I can see why American audiences weren't quite ready for it, even in the version they got, which apparently ended with Lulu joining the Salvation Army, which I think is quite hilarious. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the scene, and I'm pretty sure it's in the first 15 minutes where someone comes into Lulu's apartment and he like flexes his muscles and she just grabs onto his arm and like starts swinging from his bicep. And it's just hilarious. It's almost like a, you know, kind of screw the patriarchy moment because she's not impressed at all by, you know, these muscular men who are all fighting over her. She's just having her own fun and, you know, living her own life. And, you know, we see throughout this movie men kind of throwing themselves at her or going to pieces about her or getting all emotional and violent. And the whole time she just is taking it very lightly. It doesn't seem like anything really phases her because, you know, she's she's above it all in a way. And as a viewer, we don't be you know we're not sad we don't feel bad for her at least i don't i don't know about you i don't feel bad for her at all until like it what she's doing how she's living her life is not sad until it's forced upon her so uh her old her old you know uh sugar daddy not really sugar daddy but yeah. you know drunk uh uncle basically sh uh shy gulch uh german i don't know how you pronounce that but so he asks, you know, at the beginning, he says, you you could come live with me. And she says, I can't live in that little garret. And, but mm -hmm. where does she end up? She ends up in this right. like windowless, right yeah, uh, gross, like hole in the wall place. And then the same thing, like when she tells Cassie Piani, uh, the, the guy that she meets on the train, that she's not going to sell herself. You know, she says mm -hmm. it's worse than prison. But in the in the yeah. end... What does she have to do? Like she has to sell herself exactly. to be able to survive. And so as the viewer, we're with her. We're with Paps the whole time. It's we don't feel bad for her. We're not judging her. Uh, and but it, it's not until these things are forced upon her that we start to pity her, that we start to really empathize with her. And and it becomes really emotional. I was surprised at how emotional I felt last night. Yeah. Um, I think I cried at the ending the first time I watched it. I didn't know it was coming. And I was like, so 
taken aback um, and I don't want to jump to it yet for people that haven't watched it. I, you know, maybe we'll talk about the ending in a little bit, but I was definitely surprised by it. But those early scenes and the even the first like two thirds of this movie are pretty fun and like pretty zany. So the part that I think is a highlight and many critics have said the same is the backstage scene. Yeah. So, you know, basically what happens is she's in love with or maybe he's in love with her. This um, this rich guy who's like a financier and his son is um, probably also in love with her. Uh, and he's stuck in the musician. friend zone, though. Yeah, he's stuck in the friend zone. She's like, oh, you're my best friend. You don't want anything from me, which is hilarious. <laughs> they always do. Um, and then, you know, she's she's hanging out with this guy who wants her to be a trapeze artist in his play. So, you know, her old lover, um, who's engaged to a more, I guess, noble woman, ends up coming to the play. And when she finds out that, that his fiance is there, she's like, no, I'm not going to perform in front of this woman. So he has to go back there and try to convince her and then of course he ends up just getting seduced by her because she's throwing a fit and he can't help himself and then they're caught in the middle of it and it's you know one of the most funny but also i think one of the most erotic scenes in early cinema yeah i agree and i i don't know i feel zero sympathy for um for shown uh, dr mm -hmm. shown uh i feel um i'm sympathetic towards lulu of course i'm sympathetic towards alva Sean's son, mm -hmm. um, but that's about. Um, I'm sympathetic towards who's the lesbian? What's her name? Gare Countess Countess Augusta. Oh yeah, uh, well, I'm not going to try to say her last name, but Countess Augusta I is had how I always down. Yeah. Um, so like, the, but this Doctor Sean, like her, her kind of main beau, and and we we are going to get into some spoilers here, so. Mm -hmm. uh, I would suggest because this this is a movie you want to experience, I think, without spoilers. So uh, maybe stop here, go watch the movie, come back. But uh, when he is shot and like it's it's perfectly scripted, like we don't yeah. feel bad for him at all. He's no. like the He's line just trying to get her to kill herself. The line he says, oh, my God, you know, uh, he uh, kill yourself so that you don't drive me to murder. Like that is classic abusive boyfriend shit. And I'm like, fuck Absolutely. this guy. And and when, you know, and it's obviously accidental. Hello, we're we're privy mm -hmm. to the, you know, more than what the court sees. But um, like this guy is so grumpy, like the whole time. He's a philanderer. Right. He's cheating on his, you know, he he has a good thing here. Like he could marry into money, right? Dr. Sean could. Yeah. And he's cheating on her with this beautiful woman. Again, uh, you know, I, I put out a tweet. I said, uh, I just had a picture of Louise Brooks. I said, could you blame him? Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. She's obviously <laughs> beautiful, but this guy's an asshole. And uh, like, I mean, he, gosh, the backstage, which is so funny because it's such a hysterical scene. The stage manager yeah. is like just he's losing his marbles and he's trying to kind of conduct everybody. And, and you know, when he lines up the soldiers, <clears throat> He sends them out and slaps their their face mask down and pushes yeah. them out. Oh, it's so funny. And and that guy is so great in that role. Uh, but it so that that kind of zany slapsticky uh, comedic moment uh, juxtaposed with this real asshole. Like, I mean, essentially abusing his his mistress. Mm -hmm. uh, 
plays so interestingly that, uh, you know, I, I didn't know how to feel because like I was laughing, literally laughing out loud during some of those scenes, especially with that stage manager. You know, he gets on the platform and it starts to lift up. And he's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah. You know, he's going higher exactly. and higher. Exactly. It's very funny. It's so funny. But then all of a sudden this incredibly dark moment comes in and I'm like, oh, that is like cinema, you know, as they say, pure cinema. It's mm-hmm. it's absolutely genius how that how it plays. Yeah, the way it switches moods from this, you know, jaunty reception where everybody's drinking and dancing and having a great time and Lulu's finally, you know, getting married, even though it's to somebody who we have our doubts about. Um, you know, that that moment changes immediately when her possessive husband comes in and discovers her, you know, hanging out with her old, I don't know if it's her pimp or her father. Like right. I still don't really know. I think it's ambiguous on purpose and you know, his, his friend, but they're, they're having a fun time and yeah, it's a little compromising, I guess, but it's still like, you know, you knew what you were getting. Like you knew Lulu before this, (laughs) you knew who who she was. You still wanted to marry her. And now you're going to get all like up in her shit and say like, kill yourself. No, fuck that guy. He got what he deserved. Uh, totally. And then, you know, it's it's so fucked up that that you uh, were talking about the son, Alva, is also in love with Lulu, but he's stuck in the friend zone. And so, I mean, like just the uh, <laughs> the soap opera of the whole situation is great, is so uh, riveting mm-hmm. and entertaining that that romantic soap opera part um it's so uh, hypnotizing i I love it um okay before i you know maybe 10 minutes ago you had said something it it took a little bit maybe the first time you're watching it to try to get into the movie Mm -hmm. for me even the second time there are a lot of characters in play here yes and it's it 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 took me a minute probably an hour not a minute an hour 60 minutes to kind of get everybody straight, get my ducks in a row yeah. and say, okay, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And by that time, you know, we have one of them getting shot and killed. And so now I don't have to worry about him, but okay, now his son is here. And then who's this old guy, the shy goal? She, he calls, mm-hmm. she calls him her daddy, but also calls him her first, first client. Patron. Or, yeah. Patron. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but but then like more people get involved here. I'm like, Jesus Christ, so many characters. Um, again, it all kind of, uh, you know, f- forget the whole tragic side of this. The soap opera part of it is really great. Like everybody's in love with Lulu and that is mm-hmm. super entertaining, I feel. Yeah, it sure is, especially when they're, you know, traveling. And so you've got you know, the creepy guy that's trying to sell her to the Egyptians as, you know, a prostitute. And then you've got the gambling Alva, who's, you know, like trying different card tricks and seems like his luck is not so great. And then you've got the the sugar daddy or whatever his situation is, the old creepy dude that drinks a lot. Um, and then, you know, then you've got the countess who's in love with her as well. And they have a lot of cute little interludes. And I... I kept wishing like if this if this had ended the way I wanted to, those two would have somehow yes. ended up together. I think that is the most wholesome of all of her relationships. Yeah. 
Alva seems like he, even though he's like in love with her, he's also sort of using her. Yeah. And he's, you know, obviously he's got his gambling problems and he, his dad is Dr. Schoen, who was also an asshole. So it's like probably he inherited at least some of those tendencies. Yeah. Um, but it seems like the Countess is the only one that's not trying to exploit her and is like giving her money when she needs it and trying to get her out of bad situations. And she really sacrifices herself a lot in order to, you know, kind of keep Lulu out of harm's way. Yeah, yeah. She, but she is the one that, um, yeah, I think you're right. She's, she doesn't, she's not using Lulu. And mm -hmm. there are moments in each of these other characters where, um, even though they're like such users of Lulu, there are moments where uh, they allude to them wanting to save this woman, mm -hmm. right? Like save her from her immorality. Yeah. And but you don't get that with uh, with the countess, and that I'm with you. I uh, I don't. That's <laughs> the first time I watched this. I was like, oh, I really hope they get together. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't end like that at all. Oh my god, it does not end no. like, like that at all. Um, real quick before I, before I scroll past this note, uh, real random thing. She's Jewish. Did you notice this? There, yeah, the I saw the in the background? I saw the menorah and I was very intrigued because later in the movie you see like Christmas trees and mistletoe, but yeah, she seems to be Jewish in that first shot of her apartment. She has a menorah. I, yeah, I just, I don't know why that fascinated me again. This is 1929 Germany, right? Right. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, that's uh, that's big. I feel like yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah. I wonder if it was controversial at the time. I I don't know. I should probably do more research about it, but definitely. So tell me if you agree with this. I think Orson Welles portraying uh, uh, Citizen Kane portraying Kane based his performance on. Dr. Sean. I like that. There are so many moments in, and, and, and maybe, maybe Orson Welles, you know, was just influenced by GW Pabst. I don't know. And he loved this film. Who, who's to say? I don't know. But there are so many moments where Sean and he is played by, his name is Fritz Kortner. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are so many, and, the performances are out of this world. I feel like, uh, real quick tangent here, I feel like if you walk away from a movie like absolutely hating this character, that's a hell of a performance, right? Yeah. So I walked away from this movie like when when Sean is killed, I'm like, yes, yes, goodbye. <laughs> He's the right. worst. Uh, so obviously great performance there. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, Orson Welles, I, I just, there's so many moments where I was like, Orson Welles is obviously doing <laughs> Dr. Schoen in several moments in Citizen Kane. Uh, just that kind of brooding, you know, eyebrows always, you know, especially when, mm -hmm. when Kane is older in the movie. Uh, there's just so many moments where I'm like, Jesus Christ, it, there's so many similarities here. There's definitely parallels. I never thought of that before. So now I want to rewatch Citizen Kane with that in mind because they're only 
they're only 12 years apart, these movies, right? So he certainly would have had the opportunity to see it. And yeah, that's really interesting. Now I'm going to have to look that up and see if he <laughs> mentioned it anywhere. Uh, I thought I was really taken aback when so Lulu uh, kills uh, mm -hmm. in self-defense, basically, yeah. Dr. Schoen. She's put on trial and we're, you know, I mean, this movie is two, two hours and 12 minutes. We get a courtroom scene. We get like a circus or a backstage follies scene. We get, you know, a homeless scene. I mean, there's so much stuff going on here. Yeah. But anyways, the courtroom scene, I was taken aback by how hard the prosecution went. You know, he he does this whole thing. He, you know, Pandora, there was a woman named Pandora and she opened her box and all the evils, you know, uh, were loosed upon men. And so he's comparing Lulu to Pandora. And then he goes, we demand the death penalty. And I was like, holy shit, we're going I hard know, here. that escalated quickly, right? <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I liked how Lulu's face changes as he's describing Pandora. Because when he first describes her as this gorgeous woman, she kind of has like a flirtatious look in her eye. Yes. And then when he talks about the evil, she goes really dark. And all of a sudden she like realizes the gravity of what's about to be said. Um, and I thought all of the acting, which she obviously does without words, without acting, where she's really just sitting there looking was very impressive. But critics at the time were like, she's not acting. She's, you know, what is she even doing? Not a lot of appreciation for naturalism back then, I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, and so, so she becomes this kind of folk hero and it's kind of exciting how, uh, Geishwitz, I think is, is the countess's name anyways, like kind of rounds everybody up and they say, okay, we're going to bum rush the court and we're going to surround Lulu. Everybody's going to lock arms. And then we're just going to do the, you know, the, da, 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 da. And like usher her out, like you know, hiding her anyway. So, so Lulu goes exactly. on the run. And they do the old, like hitting the fire, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. The, the fire, fire alarm, alarm goes off distraction. Yeah. So she goes on the run and becomes this like folk hero. And, uh, but then like on the train immediately, she meets the, the Panini, Perini, Piani, Casti Piani. Mm -hmm. And cause he, he recognizes her and knows right. that there's a, you know, a reward, a $5,000 reward for her head. And so he says, uh, 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 I'm going to own you now. And so she's mm -hmm. from here on out, she's treated like the commodity. Like I had talked about before, she's forced into this lifestyle and he tries to sell her, you know, to this uh, Egyptian guy uh, to move down to Egypt and, and dance in his cabaret. And uh, it's it, like the, up until then we've had maybe some sad moments, some very funny moments, but it's been, it's been a fun movie. I, I would say it's a fun right. movie, but then it gets so dark and I start stressing out uh, really when uh, they show Alva and I want to say the actor's name. His name is Francis Letterer. The way he plays this, especially when he's at the, the table, at the card table, like his hair is, is you know, tousled and, and he's sweating. And he's so, <laughs> he has the worst fucking luck. He's losing every hand. And I'm stressing out for him. On yeah. top of 
I'm stressing out with Lulu because I'm asking myself, okay, if I'm in this situation, what am I, what would I do? You know, would it, would I turn myself in? Uh, would I kill myself? Would I commit suicide? Would I keep running? Um, and like these moments in movies like this stress me out so much. Uh, and so the movie for me turns from fun. I'm having a great time to Jesus Christ. This is a lot of work watching this, which is, <laughs> which is not to say it's bad or, or it takes anything away from the movie. It actually, for me, it adds, it, it makes the movie even greater, but Oh, like I went through it last night. Yeah. It's almost got some like uncut gems level stress in it, yes. I would say, in those moments. Because, you know, she is like in this very bad situation where she's being blackmailed. And the guy blackmailing her is like, look, I can turn you in or you can basically be a prostitute and I'll make money off of you that way. But unless you cough something up, you know, that's what it is. And so she's desperate. She's trying to get, you know, money from whoever she can, including the countess. She's hoping that Alva wins. But of course, you know, he gets caught cheating with cards, which is a disaster in itself. Yeah, it, her world turns upside down. And that's what I think is so hard to, to watch is we've seen her be this person who's really in control of her own destiny and really like a strong, powerful woman. And now she's powerless. And that is a tough thing to see. It's like seeing somebody's spirit get broken. Oh, and who fucks it up? Men. Men come in and just of fuck course. everything. Of course they do. Yeah, just ru <laughs> they ruin it. Uh, so, so then we're in our and this is broken up into eight acts, which I I really mm -hmm. love because that really uh, allows the movie and obviously it's based on a play, but it really allows the story to drastically shift. You know, time, drastically mm -hmm. shift places, setting, whatever. Um, so I I really appreciate the the breakdown of the act so here we are in the eighth act the final act and we realize this is a christmas movie <laughs> yes so exactly it's christmas time and <laughs> and then jack the ripper comes in yeah or somebody that's supposed to be jack i, I don't know supposed to be jack i'm the ripper. assuming it's jack the ripper that's how i've always interpreted it and heard other people say but basically yeah i mean it's somebody who's killing women and, and, you know, there's like posters up around town saying warning, you know, women and girls should not go out at night by themselves because there's guy, this guy that's going to like draw you out and slice you up basically. And we see a handsome, if troubled looking man kind of wandering around in the London fog and holding a blade. Right. So he's definitely very intimidating and we're like, Oh no, please, please no. But of course that's the direction it goes. And what, you know, this gets, it gets so, so again, it puts you through the ringer, the emotional ringer here. It gets so sad, so dark that uh, we're up in the flat and Lulu, you know, she has to go out and walk the streets and, and look for money so they can eat or drink or whatever. Uh, so they mm -hmm. can live. Right. And uh, Alva is, He's just trying to survive this poor. I feel so bad for this kid. Like he has gotten in so deep, but I'll ha I have to hand it to him. He hasn't left her side. You know, that's true. He's been with her. And uh, after the gambling situation, you know, the, he's so broken. He's dead inside. And 
um, there's a shot. So Lulu has left the apartment, but there's a shot where he and Shy Gulch are still in the apartment, and Alva. Uh, it's a really slow tracking shot. He walks and he stops, and there's three. And it's just, I don't know, maybe it's supposed to be laundry lines or something. But they look oh, I like thought it was nooses. three nooses, three. right? Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, this is so dark. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that indicates that her fate was going to be death, even if it wasn't at the hands of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, that she's doomed either way. But there's a line that she says before she leaves the apartment where she's she's cutting the bread, which is obviously really stale and hard. And she says, it's funny, you can buy alcohol on credit, but you can't buy bread on credit or something along those lines. Oh. And so it just like cuts you to the core, right? And she's like putting her makeup on and they're like, oh, you don't have to do that for us. And she makes some comment like she's not really doing it for them. Like she's going to go out. She's going to pick somebody up. She's going to make money that way. And it's, you know, how far that she's had to fall from the the carefree girl we saw at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, just and uh, we I've kind of done the thing. I've kind of directed our conversation where we're describing the movie as we go along. Um, but I, I don't, I just like how this movie kind of allows you to do that. But, but you know how the exit of each character is just so perfect. Shy Gulch walks down the stairs and he opens up the, the kind of back door to this pub or whatever. And mm-hmm. he goes into do what he does drink. You know, that's all he, he knows what, how to do. So he goes to drink and then, uh, Lulu is stabbed and killed, uh, which is heartbreaking. But then the final shot, which I think is even more powerful here, is the Salvation Army marching band goes by, and they walk down this beautifully, you know, set, beautifully lit tunnel. Uh, and then Alva is just kind of standing there, uh, you know, looking sad and down, and he eventually follows them. And so that leaves, I feel like that leaves it on a, a bit of a hopeful note. Yeah. That he's at least going to try to help himself. Right. Uh, but Jesus Christ, like, and and this, you know, it's an older movie, so credits are up front. And so this plays up until 2.12. You're getting this, like, up until the very last second. And you're just like, oh, fade to black, movie's over, and you're, you're just kind of sitting in your own. And I love movies like this where you're just sitting there like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh my God. So heavy. And uh, again, I didn't get that on the first watch, uh, but wow. And, and then, I mean, how poignant it is. We're recording. This comes out in January, but you and I are recording this a week before Christmas here. And so how poignant was it of me sitting there with the Christmas tree next to the TV and, and the Salvation Army playing, you know, a Christmas carols they walk by and and just this such a downer note. And I was like, oh, perfect. It's perfection. Yeah, it is the perfect sad Christmas movie. That is for certain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, even though it ends on a sad note, um, all of my memories of it anytime I think of this movie are just filled with warmth because... Louise Brooks and the character of Lulu just rise above it. And, you know, you, you feel like she's the person that touches everybody that she meets in some way. 
and even the pers- the people that aren't doomed by falling in love with her, you know, I'm sure she made an impression on. And so you get the sense that this is a larger than life character that, you know, anybody in this movie world has probably, you know, experienced her, been been touched by her in some way. And so I think she lives on in that, in their recollections. For sure. And, and I, again, I think it's so, you know, at, at during the courtroom scene in the movie, they make a point to label Lulu as Pandora, but mm-hmm. you never get the sense that the filmmaker or the writer feel that way about Lulu. They're not judging her. They're on her side the whole time. And I think it, it's also nice to know. So it, it's, it's very dour at the end. Uh, she's dead. And maybe knowing Louise Brooks kind of her earlier life was sort of like this. But then you come to find out, you know what? This woman lived till she was 80 something and she became a freaking historian, film historian and a critic. Yeah. And so like, you know, again, this, I I watch movies. That's, that's what I do for a living. I watch movies and I write about movies and, and I get so wrapped up in so many movies. And this is, this was no different. I was so wrapped up in it. But then when I read about Louise Brooks today, I was just like, Oh, thank God. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And she, you know, even though this movie wasn't really widely received or well received when it came out, she was alive to see it have that revival and great is that people embrace it. You know, she was able to, even up into the 1980s, she was able to go to screenings and present it and do interviews and, you know, talk to people who were huge fans. So it's such a relief to know that because how many, you know, stories are there that end differently where somebody did become a huge cult icon, but they never knew. Right. So I love that that's the ending of Louise Brooks' story. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's incredible. What a fabulous movie. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, making me watch it sooner than later, Rosalie. So, and then I, I, I couldn't have imagined talking about it with anyone better. So, um, all right, let's move on to the second half here. We're going to come up with some pairing suggestions now. Uh, I... I thought it was a little difficult, not just because it was, or maybe it was because it was a silent film. I don't know. Did did you have any difficulty like trying to think of suggestions to pair with it? So I had a number of suggestions in mind, but my difficulty was I was trying to assign like a theme to tie all of them together and I couldn't end up doing that. So they're just going to be three random movies that I have connections to this one. And I hope that that'll work out. Yeah, but that- yeah, it, it can be difficult to try to find something that's like, okay, do we want to match like the theme or the iconography or, you know, kind of what, what realm do you want to go into? Yeah. yeah. No, I I'm with you. I, I tried to find a theme. And I was like, nah, that, that ain't going to work. So, uh, well, <laughs> let me, let me hear your first one. Yeah, absolutely. So my first one is actually another silent movie and another German movie. Um, it's called, I don't want to be a man. And it's from 1918 directed by Ernst Lubitsch, who, if you know me at all, you know, I'm a huge Lubitsch fan. Now this movie, um, is a shorter one than the one we just watched and talked about. This one's only 41 minutes and it's, I would say it's a comedy for sure. Um, but the reason that I think this makes a good pairing is it's also, I think, very progressive in its depiction of a young woman's sexuality and gender. Um, so the star of the movie is Ossie Eswalda, and she actually goes by the name Ossie in the movie as well. And she kind of looks like 
1918 version of Greta Gerwig. That's like the best way I can describe this person. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's really charismatic and has a great time. She's a young lady who, you know, is kind of the bane of her um, caretaker's existence because she likes to drink and smoke and play poker and hang out with the men. And, you know, she's not ladylike in any way. And so, you know, she's she's having a great time just kind of living her life. Um, but then she has a new caretaker that has to come in, like, make her settle down and kind of, like, keeps her away from all the things that she loves because they're like, oh, you're not being ladylike. Well, her way out of this is that she dresses up as a man and she sneaks out and then she basically just goes to bars and attends dances and, you know, hangs out with the guys and has cigars and champagne all dressed as a guy. And there are some really hilarious scenes um, of her, you know, drunkenly hanging out with men in various uh, compromising positions. So there's a lot of just fun kind of sexual mores being challenged in this movie. And it ends in a way where she realizes she doesn't want to be a man because there are downsides to that too but she certainly experiments a lot with the gender bending and it's a really fun movie so um if you enjoyed a silent film like uh the one that we just watched this one is decidedly much more comedic but also just super fun and feels very progressive for its time oh wow that is incredible and uh after this recording after i i push stop and we say goodbye I'm going to go watch some Ernst Lubitsch myself with Shop Around the Corner. So nice. tis the season way before this is released. So uh, uh, sorry, folks. Merry Christmas next year. Um, <laughs> okay. So, well, shoot. I guess I'll go with my silent film pick as well. So I have... Uh, where's it at? Where's it at? Okay. Listeners, of course, you can't see this, but Rosalie, I have this super old Hitchcock DVD set that all the movies look and sound like shit. Um, (laughs) But it's all of his like early, early, early silent films. And I've picked a couple already for uh, on previous episodes, but it's really fascinating going through this set and seeing, you know, uh, from where the master came. Right. So anyways, Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought a great, movie to pair with Pandora's box um, would be The Manx Man from 1929. Uh, of course, directed by Hitchcock and it's written by Elliot Stannard and it's based on the Hall Kane novel. And uh, basically it's about these two friends who fall in love with the same woman. Okay. Uh, Pete, one of them is he's a poor fisherman who wants to marry uh, Kate, but her father doesn't approve so Pete, he ships off to earn more money to prove his worth. Entrusting Kate to his best friend, Philip, who's a lawyer. Now, while Pete is away, Kate and, and Philip fall in love. Of course, that's going to happen, right? Uh, news comes of the shipwreck, and everybody thinks Pete's dead. Well, guess what? Pete's not dead, and he shows up only to find that his best friend and his girl are engaged to be married. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of like pandora's box it sort of it, it uh it plays you it plays with your emotions mm-hmm. it's funny it's a jovial movie and then it gets pretty serious 
And like you have this huge falling out between these friends and you have this this poor woman who's stuck in the middle. And and uh, anyways, uh, I, I love going through these old Hitchcock movies. And this is uh, this was another winner for me. Nice. I have not seen that one. I've seen quite a few of Hitchcock's um, talkies, but none of his silence other than The Lodger, I think. So now I need to go back and watch that one. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, most of them are, are, are pretty good. Um, okay, let's hear your next one, Rosalie. All right. So my next one comes to us from Italy, and it's directed by Vittorio De Sica. It stars another of the women that's on my wall that I'm staring at right now, and that's the lovely Sophia Lorenz, as well as Marcello Mastroianni, who's not on my wall but probably should be. <laughs> um, so this is a movie called Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And the reason I'm picking this one is that Sophia Loren plays actually three different women in this um, anthology film, but all of them are women who are using their sexuality and using their feminine wiles to kind of improve their station or get what they need or basically just be kind of sexually liberated in their own way, even in it, a strange circumstance. So the first story is about a woman named Adelina of Naples. And... Um, She's married to, I would say, kind of a loser, this guy who's unemployed and who isn't supporting her. So she has to, like, sell cigarettes black market to, like, support them. And then, you know, she's unable to completely do that. So they come, the, the bank comes to repossess all the furniture in their house. Well, the neighbors help. They hide all the furniture. And so the bank can't take much of it. And then she finds out that there's this obscure law where in Italy, they can't possess your furniture, repossess your furniture if you're pregnant. So she just decides to just constantly be <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> and so that's, you know, a very hilarious setup. And it's a great little segment. And I love it. Um, and then in the next one, um, she is the wife of this super rich guy. And um, she is driving with him in his Rolls Royce. Um, and basically she has to choose between the guy and the Rolls Royce, which I think is hilarious that she would kind of have trouble deciding between these two things. And I won't tell you who she chooses in the end or what, but, um, it's very fun. And then in the last one, she plays Mara of Rome. And in this one, she is a prostitute who has like high, high class clients. Um, and so in this one, she is, um, basically, you know, talking to somebody who's studying for the priesthood and she's trying to basically convince him that maybe he shouldn't become a priest. And she does this very seductive strip tease in the movie, which I think is also featured on the poster. So great movie yesterday, today and tomorrow. Um, it actually won an Academy award and um, it was made in 1963. So certainly a more, sexually liberated time the 1929 but i think it's still a pretty progressive movie and definitely worth seeking out man i uh i will last year i watched after the fox for the first time which is another mm -hmm. vittorio de sica movie and uh gosh i love what he does and so this is uh really uh, exciting to add another movie to my watch list of his so uh, beautiful recommendation. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I really love the idea of pairing old movies with 
newer movies, like mm-hmm. where there's several years between the two. And so I'll, let me be upfront. Rosalie, your picks are going to be way better than mine. I uh, highly doubt it. No, no, no. Because no. <laughs> I, this is, I don't know why, but this is one that I had at the top of my mind, even before seeing Pandora's box by just reading the synopsis. I was like, mm-hmm. you know what? I want to play Derailed with it from 2005. It's the uh, Clive Owen, Jennifer Aniston, Vincent Cassell movie. Oh, I haven't seen this one, but I remember the previews for it. <laughs> Tell me more. Okay, so it's it's written by Stuart Beatty, who's great. Uh, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. based off the James Siegel novel and directed by Michael Hafstrom. But... Um, so Clive Owen is this guy called Charles. He's happily married. He's got this daughter with, he's happily married to Melissa George, by the way. Um, and they have this daughter who has type one diabetes and it requires like expensive and constant medical care. And so, you know, uh, once a week or, or once a year or something like they have to go do dialysis or something with their kidneys. Right. Anyway. So, he meets this woman on the train. They live in, you know, Connecticut or whatever, and he has to commute to New York City. So he meets this woman on the, uh, you know, Long Island Railroad, and uh, this is Jennifer Aniston, and he strikes up a conversation with her. It gets flirty. Eventually, they strike up this affair, and they go looking for a hotel room. So they get this cheap-ass hotel room. They go in. They start fooling around, and Vincent Cassell breaks in holds them at gunpoint and he like, you know, pistol whips Clive Owen and, and give me your money. And he leaves. Oh, and he, he rapes Jennifer Aniston's character. And it's, it's very brutal. It's a very brutal scene. And so Vincent Cassell leaves uh, and you think, or not you, the viewer, but Clive Owen, you know, okay, this is it. You know, he took my wallet. I have to cancel my credit cards, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, Turns out Vincent Cassell has all of his information. He starts stalking him and demanding more money. Empty the savings account. You have to embezzle money from work. You need to, you know, he even shows up at his house and, and acts as this, you know, client. And he's sitting down with his wife. And and so Clive Owen ends up, you know, like emptying out the savings account, all this money that they have to use for their daughter's medical care. And mm-hmm. uh, so eventually... Charles Clive Owen takes matters into his own hands and it, we go on this kind of revenge reconnaissance mission with him. Um, and he uncovers a deeper secret and that's all I'm going to say. And it, so I was a little nervous. I saw this in the theater and I really loved it. We bought mm-hmm. the DVD. Uh, and of course I had to unwrap the plastic. I bought the DVD in, I don't know, 2007, it's 2021. Mm-hmm. I had to unwrap the plastic, so I hadn't seen it <laughs> since, right? Yeah, of course. Anyway, so uh, I was a little nervous. I was like, okay, how how early 2000s is this going to be, right? Um, it plays, man. It is so exciting. And, I mean, how the cast, Clive Owen, who I love, Vincent Cassell, who I love, Jennifer Aniston, mm-hmm. who I usually love, uh mm-hmm. Riza is in this exhibit is in nice. this Melissa George plays the wife like I said anyways it's super exciting um 
after having talked now, I don't know how well it's going to play with Pandora's box. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so curious to see it, though. Now I definitely want to see it so I can see what parallels you saw when you were watching that movie. I'm so curious. Uh, anyways, uh, so there you go. Derailed from 2005. All right, uh, Rosalie, let's hear your last one. All right, so my last one is one that I recently watched, um, and it's one that recently came to the Criterion Collection. I don't think it had been very widely available, at least not on Blu-ray prior to that, and that is Smooth Talk. Oh. It's a 1985 movie that was directed by Joyce Chopra, and it stars um, Treat Williams and Laura Dern and Mary Kay Place, among others. Laura Dern, I think, is a goddess. I've always thought so, and this movie is her at her you know very young very precocious um playing a 15 year old but clearly she's a bit older in actuality um she is phenomenal in this movie and the energy that she projects actually really reminds me of louise brooks not in the way that they look but the way that they carry themselves because in this film she's 15 but she's you know clearly like busting out ready to try to be an adult um she you know is constantly kind of rebelling against her parents her mom is putting her putting her down all the time and she just wants to sneak out and you know go hang out with the boys and flirt with them and hang out at the mall and um you know go on dates and you know all this stuff so she has a tendency to her and her friend her other young teenage friend they sneak out at night they dress in much skimpier clothes than I'm sure their parents would like. Um, and they go to this diner where the older guys hang out and there's this sense of danger, but also it's like an excitement that you only have when you're that age because you don't know how dangerous the world is. So everything just feels like this exciting possibility. And, you know, the way she carries herself, it's like she knows the power that she has. Um, but she also doesn't know where that power might land her and what, its limits are so later in the film um and there have been little like snippets throughout the movie of this guy that apparently has been coming into town and like either killing teenagers or you know abducting women and so there's that kind of little ominousness and then there's a day where she fights with her mom again and her parents go to a barbecue and she decides to stay home because she just doesn't want to be around her parents and this guy shows up, played by Treat Williams, in a really slick car. Um, he calls himself Arnold Friend. And he seems really smooth, you know, as the title implies, um, but also a bit scary. And he basically kind of pushes her into going with him somewhere. And it's not entirely clear after that whether what happens is what she imagines would happen or whether it really did. And that's one of the things I love about this movie. It's very beguiling in that way. But it definitely has that same energy that Pandora's box does of a young woman who's got this burgeoning sexuality. And it can take her a lot of different places. But we know there's a dark place that it can take her. And we're, like, worried the whole time that that's what's yeah. going to happen. So really great movie. Highly recommended. Smooth Talk by Joyce Chopra. I just watched, <clears throat> so for Scary Movie Month, for uh, yep. our FS movie fans, uh, on the weekends, I did mini marathons and like themed mini marathons. Mm -hmm. And so for on Halloween, I did a, oh my God, I'm so fucking sick of horror movies 
mini marathon. So I did like horror adjacent movies. Okay. Smooth Talk was one of those. And so I just recently (laughs) watched it for the first time. And uh, boy, that third act where Treat Williams comes into play and he's just standing there like the the beautiful box art for the Criterion disc kind of shows that where she's in the house on, on one side of the screen. He's on the other side. Leaning against, you know, the, 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 the door and it like, it made me shift in my seat so many times. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is so uncomfortable because as adults, we know where this is going. Like, this is Mm -hmm. not, this is a predator. This is a sexual predator. And you know, this, this girl, like, oh, of course I'm with you, Laura Dern. She is queen. And you're like, oh, please don't do it. Please don't do it. And again, I'm with you. I love the ambiguousness of it where, you know, we're kind of left to our own thoughts. Well, mm-hmm. you know, our own definition of, of what happened, what this movie is, what this movie means. I'm with you. God, what a great movie. Whew. Yeah. And it's chilling, but it's also just that dreamlike quality that I think is infused in Pandora's box too, of the way that it's lit and the way that it's shot. So you, you almost feel like you woke up from a weird dream when you get done watching it. Right. Well, and the setting, like it, it takes place in the panhandle, maybe in Florida, Mm -hmm. somewhere in the South, but not like, you know, well-known South. This is like, you know, rural Florida or Georgia or whatever. Um, and yeah, the setting alone adds to that sort of ethereal quality of it, um, where, yeah, it, it just, you're kind of floating through this nightmare that is exciting and it feels kind of good, but you know it ain't going to end well. Yeah, the only other movie I can think of that made me feel that exact way is Picnic at Hanging Rock. I don't know if you've seen that one. but I haven't seen it yet, nope. Okay, well, watch it and let me know what you think, but I definitely got that same feeling. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, Okay, well, I will also go with a little thriller here for my third one. Again, (laughs) I don't know how well this is going to pair with Pandora's Box, but uh, I just watched for the first time Bob Raffleson's Black Widow from 1987. Yes! I love this movie. I love Bob Raffleson. Now, don't don't misconstrue this. Lulu in Pandora's box is the good guy here. She's doing mm-hmm. nothing wrong. Uh, Teresa Russell in Black Widow is a fucking psychopath. She's doing everything <laughs> wrong. Yes. Uh, but so uh, again, F this movie, I'm, I'm doing this series called 5282. And I recently wrote about this movie called Cannery Row starring uh, Nick Nolte and Deborah Winger. And so I've kind of uh, reignited my Deborah Winger crush that I had when I was a little kid. My mom just loved everything Deborah Winger. Uh, so I've been watching some Deborah Winger movies. It's like, you know what? I haven't seen Black Widow since I saw it playing like WGN when I was, you know, eight or nine or 10, whatever, you know, because it, it seemed like it was a staple on WGN back in you know this is before wgn america this is like mm-hmm. the original wgn uh so anyways black widow deborah winger plays this federal investigator and she becomes like obsessed with these mysterious deaths of rich older men 
who have all recently married the same woman, played by Teresa Russell. Uh, Terry O'Quinn plays Deborah Winger's superior, and he's, like, supporting her. He's very supportive of her and, like, sending her all over the country, investigating. She's questioning, you know, so many many different, you know, uh, victims and family members of, of, of the deceased. And, and anyways, develops this relationship with Teresa Russell and talk about some scenes where it becomes too uncomfortable. I'm just mm-hmm. like, because they play, I mean, these are two brilliant actors, Teresa Russell and Deborah Winger, right? And Teresa Russell plays it where eventually it, she like says, I know what's going on here. I know. You know, because Deborah Winger is kind of undercover. She's playing this character. You know, I'm not investigating you, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But it seems like Teresa Russell knows from the very beginning. And I I don't know, it's just so uncomfortable and it's very thrilling. And uh, it's it's everything I wanted it to be. So anyways, again, I don't know how well it's going to play with Pandora's box, but uh, you should watch Black Widow anyways. It's a fantastic movie, and I would say watch it for that scuba diving scene alone. Mary Warnoff, Mary Warnoff is in that, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so so good and killer cinematography. By the way, Conrad Hall knows what the fuck he's doing. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this this is another one, Black Widow. You know, uh, I guess a parallel to um, Lulu or not Lulu, um, Pandora's box is like. Uh, Deborah Winger's flying all over the country, like tracking this woman. She's tracking mm-hmm. Teresa Russell, like all the fuck over the place. Hawaii is, which is kind of where the penultimate meeting is. Um, but like, she's all over the country. And so like, like Pandora's box with multiple settings, multiple, you know, cities, uh, black widow is kind of like that. So there you go. There's the connection. Yes. <laughs> As loose as it is. You got there. I love it. <laughs> Fantastic pairing. Uh, Rosalie, always a pleasure. I love, love, love talking to you. I had a uh, horrendous day yesterday, so I have been looking forward to this, and uh, I I appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you online? Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. It's always a pleasure. You can find me on Twitter at Rosalie Lewis. I also co-host Blu-ray Boutique, a podcast where we talk about movies that are um, released from specialty Blu-ray labels or movies we wish would be released on specialty Blu-ray labels. We just finished talking about Twin Peaks, this, the show, as well as the movie. And um, our next uh, episode is going to be on a couple of musicals, Flying Down to Rio and Gold Diggers 1933. So that'll probably be out by the time this airs. Nice. And of course, I write for F This Movie on occasion. So same place that Anthony writes. Uh, you can find some of my work there. Wonderful. Uh, you can find this show, or I should say, you will find links to all of that stuff uh, where you can find Rosalie in the show description. Uh, for this show, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Cold Movies Pod. You can follow me at AK Donnelly on Twitter and Letterboxd and Instagram. That's A K D O N E L L Y. We're back next week with the lovely Jessica Scott to talk dirty old New York walter hills the warriors rosalie love having you here can't wait to do it again thanks again thank you